invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. And today we will be putting a wrap on what is perhaps the greatest chapter in perhaps the greatest book in the Bible. And I pray that you have found it great to remain these past several months now in Romans 8. It was a year ago that our elder team determined that giving our attention to God's word in Paul's letter to the Romans was significant. <clears throat> it, uh, it was needed at this moment in our history, and our decision was informed, at least in part, by our pastoral care for unity. In particular, the unity of our church and also by the biblical foundation for unity, namely the gospel. Caleb read this text just a moment ago, but let me, let me read again from Paul's words to the Philippians in chapter, Philippians chapter 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one mind. Then he summarizes the basis for this oneness. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if there's any hope at all of God's people being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, it will only, it will only rise from the soil of the gospel of the death of Jesus on the cross. And if there ever was an exposition of this gospel of Christ Jesus to build on in such polarizing, oneness, shattering, unity, crushing times, it is Paul's letter to the Romans what we've called pure gospel. Be beginning next Sunday, we're going to shift our focus to Advent <clears throat> and the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus, the Christ. And sometime after that, uh, after the start of the new year, we're going to return to this very profound letter. But until then, uh, I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read the ending of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read through... Verse 39, this is the word of God that we treasure so deeply. And if you're able, would you please stand? Paul writes, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may God give spiritual life and nourishment to our souls through the preaching of this word. Let's pray together. We turn to you, Lord. We put our trust in you. We turn to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We put our trust in you. There are charges that could be rightly, justly brought against us, even in this moment. And yet you are the one pleading and interceding on our behalf because you died and rose again because you live today there are no charges left to be brought because you bore them all you bore the punishment for them we thank you for this access to God and we are hoping in this access to experience and know and see and hear and commune with the living God by your active presence, O oh God, by your power, the power of your Holy Spirit. Meet us, move among us, work among us, we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 <coughs> is a, a gift. It's a gift from God to anyone who has ever asked or thought does God really love me? I believe God loves, but does God love me? I, I, I sin. Does God love me? I sin again and again and again. Does God still love me? I feel guilty and ashamed. Does God love me? My life is in shambles. Does God love me? My dreams of comfort and joy are disintegrating. Does God love me? The world is getting darker and darker and darker. Does God love me? The biblical assertion of God's love for His people 
It's relatively easy to agree with in the abstract, but in the the day-to-day realities of living as sinners in a sinful world, very few, if any of us, ever find ourselves completely free from the nagging question, does God really love me? But in verses 31 to 39 of Romans 8, Paul turns each of those question marks into exclamation points. Who can be against us? No one. Is there anything I need to fulfill God's call on my life that God will not supply? Not a thing. Is there any sin, past, present, or future that might threaten my justified status before God? Nope. Is there any sin, past, present, or future, for which I might still stand condemned? Nope. Is there anyone or anything or any circumstance that might threaten to sever me from my hope of eternal blessing in Christ? No one and no thing. Not even the worst people not even the worst circumstances, not even the devil himself can stop God from loving those whom he has chosen, whom he has called, whom he has justified, whom he has made his own. Who or what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? No one. Nothing. Friends, It goes without saying, but God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. (laughs) And how does God love you? Let us count the ways. First, God's love for you is particular. God's love for you is distinguishing. God loves you. Paul writes in verse 31, If God is for us, well then who could be against us? And that if means God is not for everyone. Jesus said God so loved the world. But God does not love everyone in the world the same way. Whoever believes in the Son will not, have, will not perish but have everlasting life, meaning whoever does not believe in the Son will not have eternal life but will perish. Paul writes, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he, that is God, will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So God's saving love, his justifying love, is it's particular. In Romans 8 verse 33, he says, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God loves his elect in a different way than the rest of the world. 
I was driving across Montana with a friend, some of, some of you know who I'm referring to, uh, we were driving across the state back in September and we see this massive billboard and on this billboard it's on the side of the freeway it says, God loves you. And my friend with his typical quick wit said, clearly not Calvinists. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.5. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. God loves distinctly and unwaveringly those whom He predestined and called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Not everyone is justified because not all trust in Christ. And not all trust in Christ, not everyone trusts in Christ because not all are called. And not everyone is called because not all are loved by God the same way. Praise God for the unspeakable gift of being the object of His free and particular and distinguishing and unmerited love. What could we have ever done to earn such a blessing. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be objects of His saving love. And if God has loved us so, and if God has saved us so, and God has claimed us so, then who could be against us? Who could separate us from such love? God's love for us is particular. God's love for us is self-sacrificing. Self-sacrificing. It's sacrificial, but it's self-sacrificing. The natural human impulse is to be self-preserving, self-advancing, self-advantaging. But Paul writes in Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ laid down His life for us. God in Christ sacrificed Himself for us. God's love is lay down your life love. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know, love, that He laid down His life for us. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when the questions rise within, does God love me? Look no further than the cross. Look at the cross. You want to know how deep the Father's love is for you? You want to understand how vast it is beyond all measure? Look at the cross. 
where God gave up himself to make a wretch his treasure. God's love is self-sacrificing. God's love for you is lavish, thirdly. If, if God's love is the very definition of self-sacrifice, then his love is also the very definition of generous. In Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, loved ones, there, there's, there's, not, there's not one thing that is necessary for us to fulfill God's purpose and calling in our lives that He does not graciously, generously, lavishly supply to us on the basis of our union with Christ Jesus. Yeah, but what if His calling for you is to endure tribulation? Joined to Christ, you will have all you need. What if your calling includes distress or persecution? Join to Christ, God will give you all you need. What if God's purpose for you includes catastrophic disaster or public humiliation? Join to Christ, God will supply all you need. Unless Jesus comes back first, every one of us in this room will pass through the waters of death. How will you go? Will it be a gun or a sword or a disease? Will you have a chance to say goodbye? Do you fear that you will have what you need to face that moment? Join to Christ. God promises to graciously supply all you need. Loved ones, if, if you don't have something, you don't need it. <laughs> and if you don't have it yet, you don't need it yet. But when you do, whatever it is, all that is necessary to fulfill God's purpose for you, God will give it generously, lavishly, graciously. Fourthly, God's love is merciful and just. Most commentators believe that the most likely subject Paul is thinking of when he raises this possibility of charges being brought against God's elect, most would say, most likely Satan. Satan is, is the one who's bringing the charges here. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, even now, who indeed is, right now, interceding for us. So the context suggests that, that the charges, the, the condemnation, are being brought into the courtroom of heaven directly. In other words, there's, there is a real and constant threat of Satan bringing just accusations against us to God. We, we commit countless sins every day. 
And they are brought forward in heaven. And though they are brought forward in heaven, they affect us in the flesh. We, we feel guilt from the accuser of the brethren. And we feel justly and legitimately condemned. And our fear is that God might justly, righteously, sentence us to banishment from his presence. But Paul assures us that's not how God's love works towards the elect. Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom God called, he also justified. And those whom God justified, he justified by punishing our sins, past, present, and future, once for all, in the body of Jesus on the cross. God's righteous requirement of atonement has been satisfied once for all. So, unlike the, the cancel culture in our world or the Me Too culture in our world in which we live where pains and hurts and offenses and brokenness caused by our sins can never adequately be atoned for, can never repent enough, where the punishment for offenses caused never ends, it is not so in relation to God's love for his people. Jesus stands before the holy judge in the courtroom of heaven and he intercedes on our behalf, pointing to the wounds in his hands, pointing to the wounds in his feet, in his side, and he pleads before God the judge, forgive him. Forgive her. I paid the price that was sufficient to satisfy your justice. Now exalt your mercy. Loved ones, there is nothing in the world like the love of God for his people in Christ Jesus. Fifthly, God's love is transforming. The, the love of God is it's not only powerful enough to bring into being the spiritual life necessary for sinners to own their guilt and see their need for a Savior and respond in repentance and faith. The love of God is not only powerful enough to produce that, God's love is also powerful enough to transform the darkest, hardest, most painful experiences in a believer's life into servants to accomplish God's eternal good in our life. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are are more than conquerors through him who loved us. <laughs> we're, we're conquerors. We're, we're even more than conquerors because God's love transforms 
the losses of trials, the, the losses of slander, the losses of uncharitable criticism into gain. God's love turns loss into gain. God's love transforms dying into victory. There is nothing like the love of God in Christ. Sixth, God's love for you is experiential. It's experiential. As profound as it is, we know God's, God loves us not simply because the Bible tells us so. We know God loves us because the Holy Spirit makes it so. Romans 8.16, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Last month, um, we, um, we were blessed by the ministry of of members of the prophecy team from Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And, and those of you who were, uh, the, those of you who came to that half-day seminar <laughs> learned that there is a difference, a big difference between the doctrine of God's active presence and power and the personal experience of God's active presence and power. As, the, uh, as that ministry team moved from person to person, there's about 45 of us, I think, moved from person to person that morning praying and expressing the gift of prophecy, it, it was typical for them to begin uh, by naming things that would be distinct about the individual for whom they're praying. I see you're a thus and so or a this and that and you do this and this is true about you. And as they were landing on these things with remarkable accuracy, uh, that was attention getting. And then they would report either things each of those individuals was concerned about or anxious about or, or matters related to their future. The effect of having a total stranger name very personal characteristics about you, con concerns that you had, quite frankly, I think I'm speaking for everybody, <laughs> is quite overwhelming. It is overwhelming. The atmosphere in that room changed dramatically in just minutes. It went from a classroom where our brains are engaged well it was profoundly emotional let 's just put it that way and i 'm not talking about bizarre, wacky, you know disorderly, you know bouncing off the walls. Nonsense. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. It, it was like this big blanket came down and wrapped everybody up in its warmth. And we felt it. 
And the common response in that moment was, God really knows me. God really loves me. No, no, no wait a minute. You, you didn't know that? <laughs> we knew that. But now we know it. Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Love poured into one's heart is it's something other than, it's something more than an interesting concept, more than compelling idea. It's what happens when God moves among His people through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's also what happens, it's what happens when our hearts are just made alive and responsive to God. It's what happens when we feel affection for God, when we turn to God, when we want God. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The experiential evidence of God's love for us is that we love Him. We want Him. We respond to Him. And this experiential reality of God's love, you know, clearly there's a, a spectrum, right? Some of us have experienced God's love through His regenerating work in our hearts because we're tender towards Him. I trust you. I want you. Some of us have experienced God's love by His Spirit falling fresh upon us through the ministry of spiritual gifts. That was a new depth of experience. Some, like the 19th century evangelist Dwight Moody, experienced the love of God poured into their hearts with overwhelming intensity. Moody's own testimony. I began to pray as never before. Why would you pray as never before? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit's moving. You want something more than you wanted it ever before. That's, that's one part of being on the spectrum. I, pray, I began to pray as never before for a greater blessing from God. And the hunger increased. Well... The hunger itself is an experiential manifestation of God's love. I kept on praying all the time that God would fill me with His Spirit. Well, one day, in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say, God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. That's one end of the spectrum. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum are those who don't feel any desire or discernible affection at all. 
but they want to. I want to want to. And that want to is an experiential evidence of God's love. And they cry out for it. And then there are others, even further down the end of the spectrum. They don't even care that they don't feel any discernible affection at all. But they care that they don't care, that they don't have any desire. And so they pray. And that mustard seed, that little mustard seed of care and desire is experiential evidence of God's love. Brothers and sisters, on the spectrum, God loves you. And oh, how he longs for you to discover new depths. New depths of his love towards you. And then finally, God's love is communicable. And that's a theological term. Communicable. God's love is one of his communicable attributes. There are attributes of God that, that are God's alone. God alone is sovereign. God alone is omnipotent. God alone is omnipresent. But God's love is one of those attributes that he intends for us to take on ourselves. To be like him. The way God loves you, his people, is the way God means for you, his people, to love others. In Romans chapter 4, verse 32, Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of the way God loves, the way God has loved you, as beloved children. You're a beloved child. God loves you as His child. Now love others the way you have been loved. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christian, Love others the way God has loved you. As God has loved you, his adopted son or daughter with a particular love, made you his own, by his grace, let your love for God's people be particular. Love your families, your friends, your neighbors, and by all means, love your enemies, but, but may your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ be distinctly fervent. As God's love is self-sacrificing, by His grace, may your love be increasingly self-sacrificing. As God's love to you has been generously lavish, by His grace, may your love for others be more and more and more generous. As God's love toward you has been merciful and just, by God's grace, keep short accounts. Harbor no grudges. Put those sins away. Nurse no bitterness. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. As God's love is redemptive, transforming, turning the very worst experiences into redemptive, transformational windows, 
by God's grace, come alongside of others in their darkest times and seasons until their trials and their heartaches and their brokenness break through to new heights and depths of Christ-likeness. And as God's love is experiential and practical and discernible, by God's grace, make His love known. Let people know that you love them practically, warmly, tangibly. Love others as God in Christ has loved you. You know, if there's one thing above all the heartbreaking, anxiety-producing things that have surfaced over the past couple years for me, it's the reality of division and relational brokenness among God's people. And I'm referring to what seems to be, at least it seems to me, just this sudden rise of untenable differences. Breaking of fellowship with treasured friends and allies over things we would never have believed would be hills on which some would die. And, and, and for some, some of us, I confess, for me personally, um, grieving over that, grieving over those things these past couple of years, it's just been perplexing, unsettling, discouraging, de-energizing. But into this grief, Paul directs our attention to the extraordinary love of God that he has displayed in the person and the work of Jesus. And it is a love he calls us to imitate. Let's pray and ask him to do this in us. Father in heaven, I pray with the Apostle Paul that may, may you grant to this flock, the people of Emmaus Road Church, and our loved ones and friends, may you grant that we would be strengthened with power, through your spirit, in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And the Lord, that we being rooted, more rooted, more deeply grounded and established in your love, we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints everywhere what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that we would be filled with all of your fullness, O oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.